0: Well, this morning I want to tell you one that we're glad you're here and if you're a guest with us there are little cards in your bulletin that I hope you you filled out and threw in the offering plate if you didn't if you will just drop them on the way out the door on one of those chairs we'll make sure to get that information um, but but I don't know maybe you're like me that you've noticed that sometimes you have expectations of what things will look like and then as time passes they look absolutely nothing like you expected and what I mean I'll just give a couple examples and 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 I remember we, we visited Cape Cod a couple of years ago out to Massachusetts and kind of drove around that area. And I remember we got to Plymouth Rock. And I don't know what I was expecting, but I think I was expecting something much bigger. Because that rock was not that big. I mean, it might have been the size of this pulpit, but I was thinking like some gigantic rock when they, it's not very big. You know, there, there's, maybe, you, maybe you're a person that reads a lot of books and then you, occasionally one of your favorite books is being turned into a movie. And then you find out who the character they're picking for the lead character from the book and you're going, that's not who I had in my head at all. In fact, one of my books I enjoyed and and they made a movie of it and and the guy they picked to play in in the movie was Tom Cruise, but the guy in the book was six foot six. I, I don't know how they can do that. Uh, it just ruined some pictures in my mind. I mean, you know, that was one of the, the characteristics of the book. So, so there are all these things throughout life that we, we have this expectation. You visit a place, you have an expectation of what it'll be, and, and sometimes we go there and, and our expectations are exceeded by what we see. But other times we're, we're kind of jaded. We show up and we have this expectation of this picture of what we're going to see, and, and it's just, just not what we'd imagined doesn't go quite how we hoped. And the truth is, that's so often the case throughout all of Jewish history. That their expectations, the way God was going to work in the world, they had this expectation, this picture. And so often, God worked in ways that were so total opposite of the picture they had in their mind. And we see that again and again in the words of Jesus. And so that's true for us this morning. They had watched, the Jewish people had watched again and again, the way the, the empires of the world worked. And they were convinced that God's kingdom was going to come in those same kind of ways. But in fact, we see it doesn't. It came totally different. We'll talk about this in the season of Advent, that it came in a manger. It came unheralded in small ways. And the kingdom of God begins to work in the world in ways in which people didn't expect or imagine. And in fact, they just don't know what to do with it. And that is the, the setting in which Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you'd stand this morning as we read from Matthew chapter 5. We're beginning with verse 43, and as has become our custom, I will say the word of the Lord, and you will respond, praise God. More of you got it this week, we'll see how it goes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 says this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, that what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, it's interesting, as I begin to look at this passage, I think we have to, to, in order order to really understand it, we have to kind of go back, and and I'm going to do something that they would never teach you to do in any preaching course you would ever take, and so I will apologize to you now. I'm going to try to preach the entire Old Testament in just a few minutes. (laughs) It's a lofty goal. Afterwards, you may tell me that was way too much, and you put me to sleep. Um, Actually, I'll know if you go to sleep, so I I, I at least try to make eye contact with you, so I really will know that. But Jesus begins with these words, You've heard it said, but I say to you. And we've talked about how that that kind of begins the story of often much of the scriptures in this this sermon as he says, You've heard it said, but I say to you. In other words, this is how you've always understood something to be. This is how you've expected God to work in the world. But I tell you today that your expectations are a little off from what God really is doing. See, the Jewish people would have had this understanding as he began to speak and teach. They would have began thinking back, to the story of the Exodus. And you have to understand the story of the Exodus out of Egypt in the Old Testament is the, the pivotal event for the people of God. It is the event that they often define much of history around the Exodus out of Egypt, this time when God came in and he saved them from themselves. He saved them from the slavery that they were they were in and the Egyptian people. And in fact, God God began even then telling them the way he was going to work different in the world because. They had remembered the story of Adam and Eve in the fall, and the Jews understood that story where where man had decided no longer did they want a relationship with God, but they wanted a relationship with whatever else was out there. And finally, the Jewish people find themselves in Egypt. They find themselves in this place of the Exodus. They find themselves enslaved and entrapped and enthroned. And in fact, the people in Egypt are oppressive, and they're shackled, and everything about it screams oppression. Nothing about it says freedom. Nothing about it says in any way is this what God really intended for them as his people, and so, so as they find themselves in captivity and they find themselves crying out to God, God begins to move in some interesting ways. And we, we know the story of Moses. Many of us do that. He led them out, but what, what's interesting is all through this story in Exodus, all through the story of God's people in captivity, Pharaoh is never given a name. Pharaoh, arguably the most influential person in the world at the time, is given not a name. But we know the name of two midwives, two Jewish midwives, Shifra and Pua. We learn their name, but we don't ever learn the name of Pharaoh. We don't ever learn the name of Pharaoh because Pharaoh is just like all the other empires of the world. He's just like all the other dictators that exist. He's just like all the oppression that we see in all aspects of life. He is just like all the other ones that come before, have come before, and will come after. So he doesn't even need a name. So we give the name of two Jewish midwives, Shifra and Puah. And in the nation of Israel, they're, they're led out of captivity. They're led out into the desert. And in this time in the desert, desert what God is wanting to teach them is this, that, that I will provide for you, that I will be enough for you, that I will give you all that you need day in and day out. But so often in this time in captivity, they lose faith. They say, well, just let us go back to Egypt. Because we knew we had meals there. We it wasn't so bad. And they keep asking to go back to slavery. But Moses just gets fed up again and again. And but God keeps providing for them. God keeps providing food for them, water when they need it. He keeps providing all that they need. And throughout that time, the whole point is this that God will provide. But the problem is he still doesn't provide in the ways they expect him to. The story continues. We, they eventually get into the promised land, and, and there are these crazy things that happen in the book of Judges. We, we read some of them. Like, I don't know if you've heard the story of the battle of Jericho. They marched around a city and blew trumpets, and everyone died. That's an incredible story that doesn't make any sense and never will make any sense if we don't understand this idea that God will provide and he is enough. To talk about the battle of Gideon, where Gideon has 300 men up against hundreds of thousands, and I'm 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 not a military person. I don't never served in the armed forces, but I can tell you that anyone who's worth anything as a leader would go 300 versus hundreds of thousands. We should probably surrender now, but they don't. And that group of 300 conquers that that army. And and God even does more incredible things. He takes one guy, Samson, who kills over a thousand people with a donkey's jawbone. I don't know about you, but that's that's almost so far-fetched we can't even believe it. In fact, there are people who argue that none of these stories are even true. But I am kind of convinced they're true, but what I'm convinced is this. They keep showing us again and again and again, from the Exodus on, that God is enough, that he will provide. And the stories continue, but all of a sudden the people, they've had these judges, and they've had these things, and God's prospering this nation, but he's not prospering them enough in the way that they want to be prospered. So they begin crying out, God, we we want a king like everybody else. We want a king. We, We want a king like all the other countries that we come into contact with, and they have their kings, and we want one too. And God's saying, listen, don't you get it? I am your king. You don't need another one. You don't need another king. I I am king. I control all that you see, all the all the armies, all the countries that I am king. They keep whining and complaining. So God says, okay, I'll give you a king, but this it's not gonna go how you expect it to go. This king's gonna come and he's gonna marry off your daughters. He's gonna send your sons to war. And April fifteenth, every year tax season's coming again and again. I promise it'll come. He'll always get his money. And say, that's okay, that's okay, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And so he gives them a king. And Saul is their first king, and we see what Saul does, and he begins, and he looks like a king. I mean, he was just 6'5", 200 pounds of lean muscle. I really don't know how big he was, but he was a big guy. And his heart starts after a heart after God, but as time passes, he begins to go wayward. He begins to move in directions that take him away from God and and he moves so far away from God that it really becomes all about him. And so what happens next is God God takes the kingdom, kingship from his family and they give it to David. David, a man after God's own heart. David, a man who trusted God so much that his little boy killed this giant. David, a man who was after God's own heart, who eventually though was an adulterer and a murderer. Because in our in our best, we always need God. In those moments when we think we don't, we find ourselves in positions where we begin to make dumb decisions, sinful decisions. We find ourselves moving further and further away from the kingdom of God and doing things again and again that just don't make sense. And so we go from David to Solomon, and it, Solomon's king kingship starts much like that of Saul. It starts with this picture that, that this picture that, you know, he's gonna be this wise king, and so he seeks after wise leaders, and God asked him, what do you want? And he says, wisdom. And part of what made Solomon so wise was that he sought the counsel of others, and he did that on a regular basis, and so he was the wisest man in the world because he recognized none of us are quite that smart. We're just not. But over time, Solomon began to believe his own press, and he began to recognize and think that, yeah, it really is about me. It really is about what I have to do. It really is about me and this thing, and so I don't need help from others I'm the king. What happened is right before Solomon's death, that the nation was on the verge of collapse. It's on the verge of destruction. Following his death, the nation split, and you had Israel go to the north and Judah to the south, and in Israel the capital was Samaria, and Judah the capital was Jerusalem. And so the nation of Israel, God's people had split into. No longer was it the one people of God, that they were going to be the light to the world. No longer were they living in the image God had created for them. No longer were they the people that God desired for them to be. They had found themselves in a different place because one of the things you remember about Solomon, we've talked about this before, and you're going to get tired of hearing it, but I'm sorry, I think it's really important for us. The thing about Solomon was this, that, that when he was king, every year the amount of gold he had measured 666 talents. Every year. Now, I'm fairly certain that he didn't have 666 talents of gold every year. I'm pretty certain it, it probably fluctuated. I mean, I doubt you have $666 in your bank account every year. at the, I just doubt that. But what I'm convinced of this is the reason that number is given is to say this. That every time 666 is mentioned, it's a reminder to us that 666 will never be enough. Because in Jewish understanding, seven was the number of completion. So Solomon will never have enough gold. He will never have enough gold. He'll never have enough wealth. He'll never have enough money. In fact, the story is so interesting with Solomon because we talked about the the, the Egyptian people, the empire of Egypt, and how God said, don't be like the Egyptians. So what did Solomon do? He stored up chariots. Where did he get those chariots? From Egypt. Stored up Horses. God said, what, don't don't build military outposts because I'll take care of you. So what he do? He builds military outposts. All the things that God said don't do, Solomon basically said, yeah, I hear you. But as a king, that just doesn't make sense to, to do those things. And God's again saying to them, listen, I've called you to be my unique people in this world. Trust me. Because I am king. Even of your king. And Solomon forgot that. And so Solomon really was the beginning of the end of the nation of Israel. And so they, once they've split in two, become become captive to various nations, first the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And so much of the Old Testament writings are written in times of persecution, in times of oppression, in times when they're in exile. During one of those exiles, during the Babylonian exile, Daniel writes much of what we've read in the Old Testament, and we often read it in various ways. But in Daniel chapter 9, he says this, "When, When will be the time, Lord? When will be the time that you'll fulfill the 70 years you've promised that you'll set your people free? And God's response to him is not just 70 years, but 70 times 7. So 500 years later, 490 years if you want to do the math. But, but 70 times 7 years, a half a millennium, a really long time away, and Daniel was referencing, I, I'm going to screw up some of you this week, and I was talking to some of you about this earlier in the week, and I'm sorry, but he's referencing Jeremiah 29. Verse 10 says this that it talks about this idea that, that after 70 years, God's people will be restored and they will no longer be in exile. Verse 11 is the one that most of you know. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you. Many of you could finish it. What Daniel's referencing is those two verses saying, listen, your prophet Jeremiah said this, that you were going to bring your people out of exile, that we were going to take your people and no longer were they going to be in exile, but when, Lord, when will you set us free? When can, once again, the nation of Israel be the people of God the way you intended for us to be? When can that happen again? Daniel, a man who recognized how powerful God was, who was led out of the lion's den, who, who was able to... To be faithful to God in the midst of persecution, Daniel is the one crying out to the Lord, and the Lord answers, in half a millennium, in a really long time. And then we fast forward, and I'm not going to go through it, but if I were to go through the genealogy of Matthew that that begins, there's these different generations, and basically if you were to add up the generations, you see that the fulfillment, the reason the genealogy exists, is to say that, listen, the fulfillment of the words of God to Daniel is this, that when Christ comes, when Christ comes, I will come and I will redeem because the redemption that Jeremiah talked about, the redemption that, that Daniel talked about, the redemption they were looking for was a redemption that would turn all the things upside down in the world. It would make the kingdom of God the way it was meant to be, and they believed that with fervency beyond what they could, could understand. The problem was, when Jesus comes, he doesn't come how they expect him to. He comes in a manger. He doesn't come as a conquering king. He doesn't come as one who who comes riding in on a horse. In fact, he comes as a baby. He comes in such meek and meager ways. And he continues to, 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 to put the people in a difficult position because when they say, well, you know, our understanding is the Messiah will come. He's going to rule and he's going to take over because what's the history that they understand? The Egyptian people, oppression, 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 military might. The Assyrians and the Persians and the Babylonians, And the Greeks, and now the Romans, what do they understand? That armies come in and it's whammo, 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 and they take over and they kill people, and that's how it works. Because that's what armies do, and that's what empires do. And if we're going to be the empire, and we're going to be God's people, then we're going to take over the world just like everybody else has. But that isn't who Jesus is, and that's not how God works in the world. And so we find ourselves here in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 43, when he says this, you have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, wait a minute. We're not sure we understand. We, Jesus, we we're with you on this idea of you being the Messiah. We're right there with you. We love it. We, we get that that's the of fulfillment of Scripture. We get that fulfills what Jeremiah talked about. It fulfills what Daniel talked about. It fulfills so much, but, but we think you're missing the point here. We're pretty sure you've got it wrong, because you're talking about this idea that we're to love our enemies. I don't think you get how empires work. I just think you're missing this here. I think you mean um, love each other. We, we can do that. We're, we're, we're even okay with that. Love the people like you. We're okay with that, too. Uh, but love your enemy? No, no, no. We kill them. That's how it works. We're not sure, Jesus. We're just not really sure you're getting this. Did you not pay attention to how it worked throughout history? We have been oppressed and persecuted for, for so many years. What do you mean we're to be persecuted further? And Jesus looks at them and he says, "Love not just don't just love the people like you. Love the people not like you. Don't just love the people who look like you. Love the people who look nothing like you." Don't just love the people from the same political party, love the people from the other political party. Don't just love that that boss that you enjoy, but love the boss that you can't stand. Don't just love the neighbor who looks like you, but love the neighbor that you wish they would move away. And I've had those neighbors. And they didn't, I did. I'm still trying to sell the house. But Jesus begins teaching them in ways in which they've never understood. Because see this, this idea of love your neighbor. This is a slap in the face to the way they've understood God at work in the world. This is a slap in the face to the way they've understood everything in the world, meaning and the way God was going to redeem them and the way He was going to make things right. This this doesn't work. This isn't what they expected. This isn't what they signed up for. This isn't why they're following him. This isn't what they want. I love this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, the real meaning of the saying is that Jesus is releasing them from the political associations of the old Israel. No more wars of faith. The only way to overcome our enemy is by loving them. The only way to overcome our enemy is by loving them. Well, that, that doesn't sound like fun. Because if you know anything about love, it requires sacrifice. It re- requires the idea of serving first and not putting ourselves first. Love, love becomes something that's really hard. But, but what does he mean by enemies? By our enemies, Jesus means those who are utterly unresponsive to our love, who forgive us nothing when we forgive them all, who requite our love with hatred and our service with derision. So the people who, who we love and spit in our face. So the people we love and, and don't care. It's the people we forgive and yet will never forgive us. It's the people who hold grudges. We're to love them no matter what. Love always stoops. Love always forgives. Love doesn't keep record of wrongs. We could read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to you, but you go to any wedding and you'll hear it there. Because love looks so much different than the ways of the world. Love becomes so much different. It begins to define a people in such tangible and such powerful ways that if we were to really love as Christ calls us to love, then we would be persecuted. That's why he says, Those are persecuted. Those are my brothers and my sisters because I too am persecuted, and you know this. You know that I'm persecuted. So what does it look like for us? How do we begin to love in this kind of powerful way? I mean, I could use big and small illustrations, but one of the best illustrations I've ever heard of what it looks like when God's people begin to love as he calls them to love is the story of Steve Saint. Many of you have heard the story of Jim Elliott and, and Nate Saint, the missionaries that went to Ecuador, to the Hirani people. They went to this this place in the jungle and they flew in and and they kept dropping gifts over time, gifts and gifts. And then then they they even took one of the guys for a flight, and they flew him around and and they were trying to to get in there to share the message of Christ and his redemption for the world. But as time passed, the the, the guy that they even took up in the plane had lied to the rest of the people and told them they were there to kill them. So when they finally landed the plane and and were going to go meet the people and they get off the plane, these five missionaries in in the jungles of Ecuador, they walk through And the Harani people come out and kill them. The Harani people had a 60% um, homicide rate. They killed one another, and they killed whoever else came near. So these missionaries went there hoping to to turn this village around. Instead, what happened is they found five bodies in an empty plane. Steve Saint's dad, Nate, was one of the pilots, or was the pilot. Steve grew up in Ecuador and you know the story of, of Jim Elaid's wife and um, it was actually Nate Saints' aunt who went back and they went back and they eventually converted much of the Harani tribe to following Christ. But as the years passed, Nate or Steve found himself um, going off, starting a business, doing really well for himself, but eventually he moved back to moved back to the jungles because the, the Ecuadorian people invited him back, the Harani tribe invited him back. And there was this man there named Minkaya. And Minkaya, when when Nate, or when Steve showed up again, Minkaya came up to Steve and said, Listen, I was one of the men who killed your father. I killed him. And you have every right to kill me. And he handed him a spear. And Steve, saying it with trembling hands, dropped the spear and embraced the man. He said, If God can forgive you, then so can I. If God can forgive you, then so can I. And the story furthered, Steve didn't embrace Micaiah in such a way that Mankaya became his father. So the man who killed his father became his father and the grandfather to his children. Now I don't know how to tell you that I don't even know what to do with that story because I can't put that into context. But if there was ever an enemy, I would assume it's the person who would have killed my parent. If there was ever an enemy, I'm assuming it would be the person who took the father for my life, that no longer was he able to see me graduate from high school or get married or have my first child, this man is one who took that from him and didn't give him an option to have any of that. But because of the way God calls us to love, he embraced this man and called him dad. And I can't put into context or into words what that looks like. I, I can't begin to say what to do with that. But I know this, that's what loving your enemy looks like. Pray for those who persecute you. You've probably seen the newspapers recently or watched television in some way, but there's something going on with the Miami Dolphins and and some guy was treated badly and I don't even know the whole story and I frankly don't really care, but what I'm convinced of is this, that bullying happens in every way, shape, or form in all kinds of places. And the people of God are called to respond with love and forgiveness. Again and again. You say, but that's not fair. You're absolutely right. It's not fair. But, but what about retaliation? The whole point of Jesus' message here is this, that my kingdom looks different than all the kingdoms of the world. They all conquered by destroying and by killing. But I tell you, My kingdom looks different. My kingdom, we say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. My kingdom looks so much different that that's how the people in the world will come to know me because they will be turned upside down by the way my kingdom loves. And you say, but but I don't want to. Well, probably he didn't either. There's nothing easy about this word for us. There's nothing easy about this idea that... Jesus furthers it when he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't want to try to simplify that and make it easier than it is, because frankly, that's, that's as hard as it gets. But he also mentions that God causes rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. In other words, God, God loves people whether they follow him or they don't follow him, he loves them the same, and he calls us to do the very same thing, to love people no matter whether they're like like us or not like us. And to be perfect is this, to, to forgive always, and to love unconditionally. To love our enemies. To pray for those who persecute us. So that God can make us perfect because he is perfect. And we can't do that on our own, we can only do it, by the power of Christ. And so we could tell you the empires of the Old Testament all the way through, the empires that exist even today. But what we're convinced of is the kingdom of God transformed the world by loving our enemies first and praying for those who persecute us. So that God can perfect himself in us, and that can only happen through the work that happened on the cross, through the redemptive power of Christ. And we gather this morning to celebrate that. But we gather this morning not to celebrate just the death on the cross, but we gather every Sunday to celebrate the resurrection that offers new life and new hope and a new chance for us to be his unique people in this world. And that is the call for us in this passage from the Sermon on the Mount to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to be sons and daughters of God, to be siblings of Jesus, and to be perfect as our Father calls us to be perfect. And we only do that through his redeeming power and the work of the Holy Spirit. Father, help us today. To be your unique people. To be your people transformed by the work of your spirit and the work of your grace. To be a people who are unique because of the power that you have for us. That we can only get through you and the work of your son Jesus. Help us this day to be faithful to your call. Help us to love our enemies even when it's not easy. Help us to be your people who can forgive quickly. Father, will you guide us to be your unique people in this world?